Thanks for tuning in to this anniversary series episode of Movie Geeks United. In this episode, we celebrate the 20th anniversary of The Last Days of Disco, with the film's writer-director Witt Stillman, actor Chris Eigeman, and an interesting coda from critic David Edelstein. These interviews were conducted in 2009 by Aaron Adediaz from our sibling podcast, Back by Midnight. I don't know, I'm not really a disco type. I probably wouldn't get in anyway. Of course you'll get in. Holly's gorgeous. This country was a dancing wasteland. You know the Woodstock generation of the 1960s that were so full of themselves and conceited? None of those people could dance. I don't care. I don't want that element in the club. Okay, I work in advertising. Is that a crime? What's happening in this country? I have a very bad feeling about the clubs. It's like a meteorite is headed straight for it. It's going to destroy everything. Yeah, well, I don't think it'll be a meteorite. something deeply ingrained in human biology. Women prefer bad over weak and indecisive and unemployed. I don't know about that. You think they do prefer weak, indecisive and unemployed? What if in a few years we don't marry some corporate lawyer? What if we marry some meatball like you? I just think it's so important to be in control of your own destiny. Late at night, you find yourself with some awful guy with disgusting breath thrusting his belly up against you, trying to stick a slobbering tongue in your mouth. Ugh. Thank God, this is a whole new era in music and social models. We're in complete control. There are a lot of choices out there. Writer-director Whit Stillman stands apart from all other New York City filmmakers. He doesn't luxuriate in the squalor of street life like Sidney Lumet or Martin Scorsese. This doesn't mean he isn't aware of it either. Critics glibly label Stillman the wasp Woody Allen. He's not. It is more accurate to say Stillman does for wasps what Spike Lee did for the African-American middle class. That is, he acknowledges their existence and dares to take us inside the inner circle and locate the humanity. Stillman's first feature, 1990's Metropolitan, was a Christmas-time comedy of manners chronicling the tentative rituals of debutante parties and the scary transition from adolescence to adulthood. It was like a Charlie Brown Christmas crossed with a John Updike story, but startling gentle in its portrayal of privileged kids discovering that good fortune doesn't guarantee a good life. 1994's Barcelona saw Stillman re-team with Metropolitan co-stars Taylor Nichols and Chris Eigeman for a military service romantic comedy about enforcing American foreign policy and disorientation. Actually, it was another lilting comedy of manners with Eigeman emerging as a new kind of leading man, a fast-talking romantic cynic. 1998's The Last Day's of disco caps off caps off Stillman's unofficial trilogy of yuppie manners. Like the previous films, disco was an elegant talk fest, a requiem for a time when talking and dancing the night away held the promise of good times to come. Tonight, with the Criterion 
With the Criterion Collection release of The Last Days of Disco, we pay tribute to the films of Whit Stillman. We begin with my, with my recorded interview with Stillman from early last week. We touch upon the origin of his stories, casting, the use of music, and S. Scott Fitzgerald. But we begin where all my interviews begin, on his earliest memories of film. As, as, a, as a young person, as a kid, what, what, what was the first movie you remember that left an impression on you? Well, the first movie I remember seeing was Bambi, and of course Bambi leaves a big impression. And <laughs> Bambi, in fact, left an impression on, on The Last Days of Disco. Right, right. And, and, and do you remember maybe uh, growing up a little, you know, in your teens or in your youth, were you interested in film? Were there certain filmmakers or actors that, you know, just as a casual fan, you, you followed? Well, um, I was just thinking about that because I was reading um, Kazan's book about directing and he was speaking highly of Richard Widmark. And I remember Richard Widmark being my favorite actor, but it was when he was in Westerns. So it was right. the Richard Widmark of Westerns that I liked. And, and coming from, um, you know, New York and, and upstate New York where you grew up, I mean, was, when you saw Westerns, was that kind of foreign to you? Was that... That. Well, I, 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 you know, lived on a farm. Oh, okay. I lived on a farm in Cornwall and Hudson, New York, and um, Cornwall and Hudson is is just um, the next mountain over from West Point, and there are a lot of we we were on the mountain. There are a lot of military families there. Um, the future General Petraeus was in my elementary school. Really? Um, yeah. And uh, did you enter? One of the, did you know I him? I never. I I can't remember him now. Wow. Um, I think I think we were in different classes, but um, it was I was amused to to read that he had come from Cornwall too, because there's a real military tradition feeling in Cornwall and Hudson with the West Point influence. One of my best friends' father was a maintenance man at West Point, and then um, another fellow was the son of a general, and his brother, elder brother, was a captain. So we had a uh, a instructor of tactics at West Point, you know, coaching our our war games, and so. <laughs> It it was uh, and and in in my period um, westerns were the films we liked. Mm -hmm. And what about what about um, reading as a kid? Uh, were you a voracious reader or? Well, I was slow to learn uh, how to read. I when I was living in in the sticks, I didn't learn much of anything. Um, and then the family moved back to uh, Manhattan, and I was there for two years and uh, went to a very good school and, and learned how to read and started reading a lot. And in those days, um, there was a series that we liked a lot called Landmark Books, and they had a lot of sort of heroic um, biographies of characters like the Swamp Fox, Francis Knight and the Swamp Fox. And so that was another, you know, avenue of hero, hero worship. Yeah, and what about in, um, what about when you, when you got into, you know, obviously high school and college when you're, you know, you're you're assigned, you know, reading over the summer in, in the books you, in, you know, in the books you read in English class. Were, were there ones that you, uh, you know, you gravitated more over the others? I mean, were you? I guess were you? Did you gravitate more towards? Uh, you know, I remember my, I think it was my freshman year in high school. You know, you read uh, over the summer. You're supposed to read Jane Eyre and Tale of Two Cities. And I remember I was an odd man out because I preferred Jane Eyre over Tale of Two Cities. Uh, yeah. No. I really want to read uh, Jane Eyre um, because 
I was working on this project um, at one point um, called Red Azalea by An Chi Min, a memoir of a woman during the Cultural Revolution in China. And Jane Eyre figures in that. It was very controversial. Someone got in trouble for reading Jane Eyre. So it made me very interested in, in, reading, in reading it. Um, for me, the life-changing book that I read was recommended by my sister, as many things in my life were recommended by my older sister. And I was in my first year in boarding school, the Millbrook School. We called it, um, yeah, I guess that was uh, um, sophomore year in high school terms. We called it uh, fourth form year. And she said I should read uh, This Side of Paradise by Fitzgerald. I was 15, and just at that point I was getting involved in sort of Manhattan social life with peppy girls, uh, and it all sort of fit into the Fitzgerald world. And I loved This Side of Paradise, and read all of Fitzgerald then, and it started turning me towards Metropolitan. Just real quick, what's your take on Great Gatsby? Well, I like Great Gatsby very much, but Great Gatsby is the artwork it's 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 the most artistically successful and wonderful book but sometimes if you're a fan of an author it's not just the masterwork you like and in those days i i loved uh, this side of paradise i've tried to read it subsequently and and thinking about trying to do a version of it as a movie or something like that but you'd have to sort of reinvent it as a film story the the book i don't think it holds up feeling of it might hold up, but there's too much nonsense in it. And I kind of, oddly enough, that's kind of the same thing with Gatsby when they try to do it in film. And they, they think because, I guess, filmmakers may think that there's not much, you know, it's all action and there's always something you can, you know, you can photograph, but there's actually a lot of internal stuff going on. And so in Greg Gatsby, and you try to externalize that and it just looks kind of silly after a while. I also have the question the way there was the whole sort of phenomenon of adapting um, books to to movies. I mean, sometimes it's been done beautifully well, you know, Gone with the Winter and that well, blah blah blah. But I think as a working method, I much prefer to be inspired by something, but not adapt it, not have the rights bought, not have it based on something, but just say, well, here we all love this book. Is there any way we can get this kind of world on screen? It won't be this book. It won't be this story. But can we be inspired by this and create something along these lines? And I think that's a more creative, happier way to go. Right. Well, and and then uh, you were abroad, I, I guess, and this is kind of interesting, you were abroad in, in, in the 70s, and your first foray, I guess, into the movie world, you know, wasn't into writing or acting, but was in, you kind of, from what I've read, you, you kind of, uh, talked your way into being a, a salesperson of, of Spanish language film. To, to that was in the 80s, yeah. In the 80s, uh, I, uh, I did that uh, thanks to the wonderful variety um, of those years. Variety in the old days, um, before Peter Barr took it over, was this thick newsprint source of incredible amounts of information and had this crusty staff, people really well informed about every country's film business. And there was a guy named um, Peter Vesas, the reporter from Madrid. And I really wanted to get into the film business. I was working for a publication that, 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 that crashed and burned, but they overpaid us a bit, so I'd save some money. And I was getting married to a woman from Spain, and, and uh, so on the flight over to get married, I read the variety special issue on the Spanish film industry and read it three times and sort of memorized it. And at a dinner party in Madrid, I met these producers, 
and they had the impression that I knew something about the Spanish film industry, I knew something about the film industry, and they gave me their films to sell uh, in, you know, in the United States. And I realized that really you don't just sell films from one country, you should sell them worldwide. But I, I wanted to make films, and I just thought, you know, I have to get it in some way or another, and this is a way in. And, and Metropolitan would be your first film. Am I right? And uh, originally, you, you, that was, you, you started out as, as a novel, but then you turned it in, you started working it as a script. Is that true? Not exactly. I mean, I wanted to, um, my original ambition when I fell in love with Fitzgerald and all that was to, when I stopped wanting to follow my father's, would be career, which is, you know, democratic politics, run for office. And in my college interview, they asked me what I wanted to do, and I realized, oh my gosh, I said all this political stuff, but I realized I didn't want to do it. And so I wanted to try to write fiction, write a novel, but I, even in college, I decided I didn't have the stamina to write in solitude that way, and got interested in film and TV, comedy. And so I was aspiring to film and TV comedy, but I was having such a hard time writing fiction and short stories, I wondered if I could ever do it. And I, I started writing um, first uh, the Barcelona script one year, but I had a full-time, super full, I mean, over a full-time job. Mm-hmm. And then I said, well, this is an ambitious thing to do a film in a foreign country. Um, I should do something minimalist that I could do very cheaply in New York. And that's when I started uh, writing the Metropolitan script. Yeah, and, uh, and just as a digression, was there a... Was there a, a a filmmaker or a style of film that you were, that, you know, that you latched onto, not latched onto, but you said, you know, if I could do something similar to this. I mean, obviously, I'm sure, I'm sure you got on the junkets, you know, and when Metropolitan first came out, I remember I was only 12, but I remember even reading, you know, uh, which film is the uh, preppy answer to Woody Allen. And yeah. I'm sure you, I'm sure, um, I'm sure you saw well, that. There, there's one, I mean, all this is kind of struggling in the dark. Uh, things were just starting to break it seemed to me in independent film and I remember reading a New York article about how Spike Lee made She's Gotta Have It and trying to figure out from the numbers they mentioned in the article how much he spent on making the film and John Sales had done Return of the Talk of Seven which was kind of the first thing giving us an idea that we could kind of turn our short story writing into filmmaking and uh, for me, a very helpful thing was a screenplay book of the Big Chill uh, screenplay. It was very, very helpful seeing how that was structured. And, you know, I was just trying to copy a little bit of the format of a screenplay. And it was when word processors were very rudimentary. I had my old K-Pro clunky thing. And um, I remembered that I thought it was kind of a pain centering dialogue so I just had dialogue flushed left and I just cut it off you know so it didn't go all the way across the page so it looked like dialogue but it's flushed left and then we're trying to get help in the film I knew no one in the business exactly would finance our film but we wanted to see if someone at the Tisch school at NYU would help us you know with our actors or show people around and a very prissy uh, woman said oh I can't help you if you have a screenplay written on a screenplay format, you're not serious, blah, blah, blah. And she was the only person who snobbed us because we didn't have um, the dialogue in the center of the page. <laughs> well, uh, i got to ask on, on, on Metropolitan, and, and, um, because uh, I guess I mean, he, does run through, he does run through all your films. How did you, how did you come across Chris Eigerman? 
It was remarkable. Uh, we had essentially the right age group targeted for Metropolitan, and a uh, the girlfriend of one of the cartoonists and artists I represented in the illustration agency that I was working in then um, had been a casting assistant, so she knew about how to do it. So we put a free announcement in backstage, the Actors Journal in New York, and we rented space at the Musical Theater Works. It's an unusual big expenditure for us. And I tried to write an ad making it sound as serious and a project as possible. It was, you know, get made and, and get out there. And 300 people, over 300 people showed up. We were just mobbed. And at the beginning, we didn't realize we were mobbed. So the first 50 people we gave callbacks to, and among them were the key people on the cast, including uh, Chris Eigenman and Carolyn Farina, and I think Alice and Rutgers Parisi. And um, so Chris came back and read, and we thought it was good. He read more, and we really thought it was good. And then um, at some point, Will Kent came into a later audition, and I thought, wow, Chris Eigenman is acting the part of Nick. Will Kent is Nick. And uh totally wowed me. And then we went through some different changes. And uh, Will Kemp was just huge and kind of scared and intimidated Ed Clements, our, our Tom character. And that didn't work at all. So we went back to, to Chris Eigen playing Nick, and then Will Kemp played Rick. And there's certain animosity between them, and it worked really pretty well there. And you had this... and. and and I guess just because he's been in your three films, uh, it's been inevitable that you know some writers have said that Chris Eigenman kind of mouths your, possibly your philosophy. But I, I wouldn't think that to be true. And that one thing I've noticed in in, in watching these films uh, is that you seem to have always two characters that are polar opposites, and that one is a total idealist, and the other one is, and possibly a little naive, and the other one. Uh, was once idealist, but now is cynical. But by the end of the film, they've restored a little bit of their idealism. And Chris Eigman seems to have played variations on that in these three films, his character in Metropolitan and Barcelona in Last Day of the Disco, of this someone who basically, if by the end, has a little bit of his idealism restored. Uh, um, I mean, I think that... Uh I mean, the character that uh, Chris Ryan really plays is kind of a, a um, how to describe that kind of character? Uh, they're, they're going in different directions at the same time. And so I wouldn't say that it's like cynic, becoming an idealist, because I think there's a kind of idealism and cynicism, like a cinnamon roll twisted through the whole, the whole thing. Um, and each of the characters is a little bit different, but it's essentially sort of the Chris Eigenman character. And before the Chris Eigenman character is a character on the page. And I worried, I saw Chris as a great dramatic actor. He seemed like a Shakespearean actor when he came in, very serious, very glum, and he'd be good with dark material. And I didn't know if he was a comedy guy at all. I, I worried about him. That's why I panicked and, and had Will Kemp come in for a while. Um, and then we worked on it a lot in the first few scenes that we shot for Metropolitan, and he got it. He's great. And I remember a film director at some these film events that were later saying, you know, this guy, this actor in in in, in someone's film is the guy who's making it happen. And it's sort of true. The way Chris played that part and how it worked, he's like kind of a comedy machine, a drama comedy machine in that. And then he kept on in the other two films. Two films. I'm really glad he was in disco because there's huge pressure 
some kind of conformist conventional types that we not work with each other, blah, blah, blah. And they wanted a bigger name in that part and all these kind of things. And I'm really glad he was in uh, Last Days of Disco, too. It really helped. And looking at Last Days of Disco, do you kind of, some of the you know pressures you might have had on making that film, which was your third film, and it was, I, I, I'm assuming it was your biggest, buggiest film of the three in the, in the studio. And did you, do you kind of, do you find a little amusing now looking back that, you know, you're getting pressure to get, you know, quote-unquote name stars, and you went with, you know, these actors, Kate Beckinsale, Chloe Seventy, and, and so forth, to where, you know, now, if you're making Last Days of Disco, these would be the people you, they'd want in the film. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, skepticism about the cast. Uh, it's very strange, the idea of who is hot, in Los Angeles. It's sort of the people who are about to break in two months, and they seem to think that the world has entirely forgotten anyone who was well-liked two years before, as if the rest of the world doesn't have a kind of longer memory span. Right. Uh, uh... So uh, I was uh, at this party in Cannes a couple of years ago, and I was totally, you know, alone at this party. I had no one to talk to, and finally some people from the States showed up, and they said, oh, you're an actor is in a TV show and he's very successful and he's, uh, uh, he's very good in the show. It's very big. And, and I went on and on. And I didn't know who's my actor, you know. And it turns out you're thinking about Robert Sean Leonard in-house. And then Robert Sean Leonard has had a huge career and it's hugely important before I was making films. Right. And um, uh, I, I love the fact that, according to the film, he's now our actor. But when we when when Robert was put in uh, in disco, he was very big uh, in New York, and our extras and the people working on the film were just thrilled to have him around because he was doing such great theater in New York, but in the industry, oh no, you know this doesn't count. He's not a star. Blah blah blah. It's really terrible. You know, Dead Poet Society was a decade ago, and that could be that might as well be a hundred years ago in Hollywood. It's just ridiculous. And the rest of the world, you know, they love Robert Sean Leonard, and he's very appropriate for for being uh, in the film. And he was a wonderful misdirect because you see him in the beginning of the film, you think it's going to be about him, and uh, and then it ends up going a different direction. Yeah. And it, and let's talk a little bit about that. I, I, I'm curious because uh, some of the, the, the characters and some of the... the, the the philosophy of some of these films, Metropolitan Barcelona, is that a lot of these characters, because of their their uh, their families and and the privilege they have, they 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 always seem to be kind of counter. They seem to be arguing against some of this stuff. Whether it's uh, in Barcelona, you know, uh, uh, you know, preppies or, or yuppies in disco, or questioning the, the, the debutante scene in Metropolitan that the Tom Townsend character sort of does. And and I'm, I found this kind of interesting in that in Disco, a lot of these, these characters are drawn to the Disco. I'm wondering, in, in you personally, in, in, in you talk about this, that you know this was the scene you were in, I'm kind of curious on what, if you were also intrigued or were you not aware of also the punk scene? Which is also kind of well, I was very aware of it, and then I just absolutely detested it. I, really? I mean, I was just appalled. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just nope. I was totally shocked. Because mm-hmm. remember, when the punk scene emerged for us, it was just weird people wearing swastikas. I mean, it just seemed just disgusting. Right. 
and uh, and we really took a drubbing when disco came out. All the people who very proudly said that they were only interested in punk music in the period and hated disco and blah blah blah. And then they belabored us and bludgeoned us that our disco film was not accurate and not authentic or something like that, based on I don't know what, because they proudly said how much they hated disco, blah, blah, blah. So obviously, retrospectively, it's very cool to say you're into the punk scene and all that, and it's not cool to say you're into disco scene, but obviously I I don't agree, you know. I just, I love disco because I hated rock and I hated punk, and finally it was stuff we liked and you know just tons of people felt the way I did and I think I think we've won in a lot of ways I think disco has not died I think the idea that disco went so far out and all that not really true I think it it has continued and um, it's amazing how disco is belabored for being mechanical and repetitive and artificial in all these ways and yet there's no criticism of music that's infinitely more mechanical and repetitive and, and tedious right and, and the soundtrack to Disco, I'm kind of curious, was this, uh, because it, it's kind of, uh, you know, here's a film, I mean, I guess, I think the, the, the soundtrack to Disco might have been even more successful at the time of its release, uh, just because, I mean, it's 10, 12, 10, 11 years later, and it's still probably one of the best single CD compilations of Disco that's out there, and it's a soundtrack. Thanks, yeah, I agree. I think, I think it, that was, we were really lucky with that, yeah. And I'm, I'm curious, did you have songs picked out beforehand and knew what yeah. in certain scenes, or was it? You know, well, you can't really you can't really know how things are going to work until you put it up against the picture. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of the music we played uh, in the disco and they were dancing too, so I think we probably let the music rip for the main dance scene, which is um, one of the chic uh, dance numbers. I can't remember the title. Um, right. Um, it was kind of a let's all dance kind of song. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, that was just played directly. And I always loved doctor's orders and wanted to get it in. And there's tons of music we loved and wanted to get in. Oddly, the song we worked with the longest did not get in the final sound. It was, um, upside down because it had been our attempt music for Barcelona. It's the music we played in the, um, the Mir Servino, uh, Chris Zagerman, um disco scene, one of them. And we dropped it because we knew we couldn't have, um, you know, expensive Diana Ross song with our budget in um, Barcelona. But I hope to have it in, be able to afford it for uh, Last Days of Disco. And it turned out to be the only scene, the, excuse me, the only um, song which they wouldn't accept our favorite nation's you know, price, you know, low-budget film price. It's the only song. They, they'd let us have I'm Coming Out, but they wouldn't let us have Upside Down for that. So when that we got that news, rather than being depressed, I was, we actually thought about it and said we'd gotten sick of the song because we'd been playing it in the temporary track for two films. And I actually think uh, I'm Coming Out was kind of more interesting and better for us. And I think over the long term, I'm Coming Out, which is a much lesser song considered the period, um, less of a hit, I think it's lasted longer. I think I'm saying it's a huge, huge song. And, um, and we like both but also because we tried to have the idea that Cheek was sort of our composer, that we favored Cheek songs no matter who was singing or, or playing them. And uh, the other favorite that we tried to favor was the Philadelphia Sound, um, Held Melvin and the Blue Notes, um, Gamble and Puff. 
demo house and things like that. Sort of more soul, silly soul kind of inflected disco music. Those are our favorites. And that's the stuff played whenever they're outside the club. uh, Now, when we're outside the club, when we're outside the club, we want different music. We didn't have any disco music outside the club, and that's where I became obsessed with uh, obsessed with Jamaican music because the composer Mark Suazo knew how much I loved Baroque music from Barcelona days, and he mm-hmm. said, you'll like this, and brought in the Jamaican music, the ska and rock steady. And we put two, I mean, it's used three times, I think, uh, Queen Majesty, a Curtis Mayfield song we recorded by the Techniques from Jamaica, um, it's used twice, and uh, um, a Justin Hines and the Domino song, a really cool song, is in the taxi scene, leaving for the airport. Right. And that made me kind of obsessed with Jamaican music, which led to interest in what I hope will be my next film. And then um, there's also Chai Lights. There is Chicago. Um, there's a Chai Light song in the plays in Rexes. And that is not, those songs are not included on the... Um, the CD. The only one I could get on the CD was the Oogum Boogum song, which mm-hmm. is not a disco song, but a good late 60s dance song. And people love discovering that song. Uh, it's one of my favorites back in the period. Which also uh, reappeared a couple of years later in Cameron Crowe's Almost Famous. And oh, really? Yeah, I was kind of shocked when I was like, it's, uh, to hear it again. Oh, good. I'm curious, on, on start wrapping this up, and then how you feel about you know, you talk about, you know, when the movie came out, there was criticism, you know, punk versus disco, and you got that about the, you got accusations of inaccuracy and so forth, and that's one thing. But I'm curious about, in that it seems, uh, I'm sure it must seem a little odd in that that there's been some, in, in the film criticism world, that there's been some resistance in some of these, in these films, the Metropolitan Barcelona, Last Days of Disco, in that you have, dared, if you will, to to bring a humanity to this upper, you know, privileged, white, you know, tier of society and, you know, and brought humanity to it that usually, you know, just as a whole gets dismissed and yet some critics still seem to resist, you know, their feelings for that. Did you, did you start realizing that with like Barcelona and, and Last Day of the Disco and just had to accept that they were going to be kind of critics who are going to just not going to acknowledge the film for class prejudice reasons, maybe? Yeah, I think we've actually been pretty lucky on the, generally the higher the criticism, the the better we fared. Um, And we get a lot of nasty comments on the internet by people who just don't get it. And I'm sympathetic to those people because some of my favorite writers, um, Whereas I ended up liking best, when I first was exposed to them, I really didn't like them, and I whined about how terrible they were, blah, blah, blah. And it was only later that I kind of got into what their angle was and what they were going And Maybe I never particularly liked the particular book that I didn't like at first, but I got to like their work. And I just think a lot of these people are looking at these things the wrong way. They're not getting – there's kind of a key – into some of these things, and they just don't quite pick up on it. And I think we might have hoped with some of the sort of negative Internet commentators, if they ever get a chance to see the films in another context, they might see what's going on and not say, oh, I hate these people, they're so boring, blah, 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 you know, the usual thing. And um, 
I mean, the, the critical reaction I found really absolutely stunning, and I just haven't gotten over. I think I've gotten over everything, and generally we got really good treatment, so I can't complain at all. But the thing was, David Edelstein um, reviewed it for Slate, and he said he only could stand 10 minutes of Arthur the Disco and walked out. And then he wrote, writes kind of a review of the movie based on having seen 10 minutes. And brags about having walked out. I just think that's just that's you know that's like malfeasance or breaking your fiduciary responsibility. If you don't, if you're a critic and you can't sit through an entire movie, you shouldn't really write about it. And uh, you shouldn't say anything. I don't think. Right. And it's yeah. idiotic because I'm sure you know in another context um, he could have liked the film perfectly well. Right. right. <laughs> Can I say a last word about that? Yeah. There go ahead. is. There is something very aggressive in the films. There is an aggressive point of view. There is kind of a lot of pushback. And so if people react negatively to that, that is part of the territory. I mean, it is a point of view in the films, and it's saying its point of view. And I hope that it's fair enough. There are enough different angles to it. A lot of it's like an argument, and you think of the next argument, and you put them all in, and you don't make your heroes seem too heroic, and your villains are not too villainy. But but there is a lot of aggression in the films, and so if people react against that, it's it's logical. Do you, to like I said, sort of, I, this question has popped in my head. Do do you feel as a writer and director, do you have to uh, love all your characters, flaws and all? Because I I find myself uh, when I watch the film, the character of Charlotte, who I guess represents a lot of that pushback. Um, I do towards the end. I you know as as kind of casually cruel as her comments can be, there is something a little, I find, sympathetic about her in that, like everyone else, she's sort of um, trying. And there is something I find, and I think the fact that in the last scene she's with uh, Dead, Chris Agamemnon's character, uh, it's almost as if she's actually maybe, it's probably fleeting because she is who she is, that she's found <laughs> someone who... Uh, probably as uh, sort of as maybe as shallow as she is to a certain extent. Yeah, and also people are defined by their context. So a mean person, a person who's mean with kind of a soft and kind and 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 and, and defenseless person, can be actually a rather good person with another toughie. And so it's possible that Charlotte will become a good person if she ends up with a tough Des character. They could keep each other on the right path. And that Charlotte's aggrandizing behavior could be excited by someone who's a little bit weak, like Alice is in the beginning. And um, so, yeah, that could work. I think we could have humanized and warmed up the Charlotte character more. It was just a little too harsh in the film, and that becomes grating, I think. But, yeah, I think she's redeemed in her own way at the end. And, and looking back, you know, it's been 11 years since Disco, and, and I'm, I am almost certain in my assumption that you never intended to pull a Stanley Kubrick on us. No, uh, nor a Terrence Allen. Right, and uh, in, in, in waiting this long. And, you know, uh, but looking back at, at these three films and, and with Disco coming out, uh are you kind of are you kind of stunned that you know each one is as assured and has the point of view that it has for being you know technically I mean it's your first three films it's 
your first film, Metropolitan, and so and Metropolitan is, is as strong as it is, uh, you know, when it first came out as being your debut. When you look at them, do you, are you kind of pleased at how well it all turned out? Yeah, I, I, I'm amazed at our good luck uh, uh, with Metropolitan because, um, you know, scenery not going for us. Um, sometimes that can be good. And I hope that the scripts I've worked on in this period of silence will turn out well. I think one of the worst things that can happen is you can be pushed to, um, you know, well, this, this is laughable, I won't even say it. But um, sometimes when people are really in the business and they're valued and they're being pushed and it's a business, you know, making their films, uh, they go ahead with things before they're ready. And we've had in the weird, painful luxury of having the projects develop really slowly and the scripts develop really slowly and you get second thoughts and you can improve things and you can change things. And so I hope when the scripts I've been working on finally see the light of day, if they do see the light of day, that we'll have taken advantage of some of this time and that we'll be able to maybe come out with some sort of much faster pace than even we were doing in the 90s. Right. Well, uh, Mr. Stillman, I, I know I've kept you probably a little longer than I said I would, but I want to I thank you for, for calling in uh, and for this interview. And uh, it's terrific work. And uh, I do look forward to your, to obviously, I do look forward to your next your next project. And uh, please come back. Uh, you have an open invitation. Thanks very much. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We're going to continue our show with my interview with uh, Chris Eigeman, actor who's been in all three of which Stillman films. Metropolitan, Barcelona, and The Last Days of Disco. Also appeared in the first two Noah Baumbach films, Kicking and Screaming and Mr. Jealousy. He's also part of the great but unfortunately short-lived sitcom, It's Like You Know. Other appearances include episodes of Fringe. And he's also a writer-director in his own right, having directed the fine movie uh, Turn the River with Rip Torn and Sam Jansen. He has another movie coming up uh, that he's going to start shooting in the spring with Jesse Eisenberg and Colin Hanks. But we begin our interview at the beginning and what first drew Mr. Eigerman to acting. What first drew you to acting? Oh. Um I guess it was a combination of I thought I could do it <laughs> and kind of a lack of interest in other things. Um, I, I grew up out in Colorado and used to work on a ranch in the summer and I sort of thought I wanted to be a veterinarian but that involved, it turns out um, a lot of math and a lot of biology <laughs> which I was particularly good at so I think that's how I ended up being an actor Right uh, and so how did you, uh, how did you originally first you know, a start to attempt to to go about it. Did you? Uh, uh, um, the first did, thing. Did, did you think of acting school, or did you think of just doing it on your own? Um, I I got out of college and I went actually to an acting school in London that I got thrown out of pretty quickly. But um, being thrown out of acting school in London is is the process is actually really pleasant. They're incredibly polite about it, and, and you kind of don't know that it's happened until after it's happened, and 
you know, it's more of a disinviting than it is an actual throwing you out. So I was in London for a little while. Um, then I came to New York. And I, I don't think I ever really tried. I don't think I ever thought about graduate school. I, I, um, I enjoyed school, but I, I was very, very happy to get out of school. Right. So the idea of maybe returning to school didn't hold a, a, a lot of appeal for me. So, and I just, you know, I was in New York City and I parked cars <laughs> and auditioned. Um, and uh, and that's actually how I first met Wit. I auditioned for Metropolitan, you know. Right. So I guess, you know, before we get into disco, how did you how did you come into into that situation and become part of a, that Wit Stillman universe? It was a, it was I think it was an open audition for, you know, basically anybody who looks like they could have just gotten out of college. Which, I mean, it, it was I, I remember it being kind of excruciating because I, I that's the largest possible pool of actors that you're going to find are, you know, 23 year olds in New right. York City because. You know, attrition hasn't started to happen with age, and and the, the the crowd hasn't winnowed out quite yet. So I just there were there were thousands upon thousands of people, um, and I auditioned. I, don't know, I think I auditioned for what maybe two or three times, and and then in the end, I, I guess he was sort of trying to figure out the cast and in one um, version of the cast I was not included and then I guess that version got scrapped and or kind of maybe rejiggered and then I was included so I got a phone call and the next thing I knew I was being fit for a tuxedo and there there it was and and, uh, if I'm not mistaken weren't you at one point I mean it's kind of hard to believe. I'm sure fans of Metropolitan, you know, you are so identified with the character of Nick Smith. But wasn't early on, weren't you also part of, I think, with thought of you as for Tom Townsend? No, I don't. Well, maybe. I mean, I suppose that's possible. I don't, I honestly don't know. I don't think so. I think I was either not in the movie or I was going to be um, the part that I played, Nick. But, but maybe, maybe in with mind, I I was going to be Tom. I, you know, it was all so kind of, um, kind of mysterious about how this movie was going to get made anyway, and and if I was going to be involved, and hmm. you know, and I'd never made a movie, so just about everything was new. And when you read that script, I mean, you know, you 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 know, like as you said, you're, you know, struggling actor in New York, and you said right. this is the longest, you know, this is the largest pool you can, you can, you know, take from. But when you read the script, I was, I'm curious. Before you got into, was your reaction? What was your reaction? Did you think, wow, this is really good, or were you of the mind that, you know, actually this is kind of maybe a little too wordy and this seems a little overambitious for a first timer? What what was your initial Impression of I, I think my um, initial response was, um, "Oh God, it's a movie and it's going to get made, so let's try to get in it." That I think was 
I, I think questions about style and um, quality were almost secondary to the fact that it existed. Mm-hmm. Um, I I do remember finding it very funny. I mean, I thought it was incredibly well written, but I thought it was really funny. And and but but that's because I sort of thought I knew what he was up to because I know a lot of other people who at the time were auditioning for it or whatever who didn't really understand that it was funny. Mm-hmm. And and I found that kind of encouraging. Although of course, when there was a moment when I wasn't in the movie, I found that excruciatingly discouraging. But mm-hmm. um, I thought that was. But at the same time. I don't think anybody could help but wonder, you know, how is this going to come out, and would that? I think I think doing it a different way. I think one of the great successes of that film is, and one of the great abilities of Lit, is that a sort of delicacy and a um, almost gentleness exists in the movie, and mm-hmm. and it doesn't. I mean, you could easily sell these characters down the river in a heartbeat. I mean, you could easily make fun of them. Right. Um, and because they're so they're so hermetically sealed in their own right. universe, and they 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 while they're very articulate and educated, they have no real interaction with other cultures in New York. Right. Just, no, it it was you know we always thought maybe it was going to play it like the Margaret Mead documentary festival somewhere um i don't i i think that that one of one of with great talents is that he'll let characters um really speak for themselves and mm-hmm. and in and in many ways betray themselves and and that's you know that's that's a tricky thing to do i and it's a thing that that is born of confidence that isn't born of you know you don't you don't stumble into that position when you're writing or directing a film right and when that film came out and, and it did become a critical hit and wit got nominated did you uh, how soon after did you realize that the you know cast and agents were going you know you you became kind of this go-to guy oh we need someone kind of sarcastic and and uh, Preppy New York. Yeah, it, it that happened pretty quickly. I mean, look, if, if the first movie you do that anybody sees, and in this case it was the first movie I ever made, you're wearing a cummerbund, mm-hmm. holding a drink, smoking a cigarette, and cracking wise, like some sort of demon offspring of Fitzgerald and J.D. Salinger, mm-hmm. you, you know that 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 is what people are going to assume. There's just there's no getting around it. Um, and some days that, that could be. Do you find that kind of amusing, considering you know? You some days I time. find it amusing. Some days I find it irritating. Sometimes I find it great. It <laughs> really goes by the day. <laughs> you know, um, it isn't. And so when you're, Barcelona, you're you're not going to be able to fight it, really. Right. You know what I mean. So when Barcelona came as, as which next film, did you? First of all, was that part of Fred? written for you in mind and also when when it was shown to you did you think well here's a chance of me breaking from that by not taking this well uh yeah i think the part of fred was written for me i think that that well 
I think it was sort of written for me, although I've also heard Witt say that Barcelona was perhaps written before Metropolitan, but I think Barcelona was a movie he wanted to make before Metropolitan. But mm-hmm. um, the, but there, I knew that, that doing Barcelona, it wasn't going to um, unburden me of what whatever sort of the way people thought of me coming out of Metropolitan. I, if anything, I thought it would probably reinforce it because you know, it is a very, very specific kind of humor. It's a, it's a very specific um, quality. And so if you're going to dip into that well again, you're really just going to be reinforcing it, which was fine. I, I had no problem with that. I, I think, you know, Barcelona was enormously fun to make. Um, I'm proud of all of them. Mm-hmm. And, and at some point, you just don't care. At some point, you're like, well, you know, I think you can get really careerist about it mm-hmm. and and worry about, well, you know, if I do another one of these, nobody's going to let me carry a gun in a movie. <laughs> and and that's fine, but but I think if you do, I think you do that at your own peril because you might not be doing the most interesting um work that you could do. And and is that and when you ask that, you know, no one will no one will let me carry a gun. Is the, is the follow-up question then to yourself is like, well, wait a minute, do I want to carry a gun in a movie? Yeah, I, I think you really just you, know, you just play the cards that are dealt you. So I, uh, I I just sort of rolled with it and and feel pretty privileged to have worked with 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 in in the films that we've done as well as some of the other directors that I've worked with. So you know, I there's Everything can have an irritating side, but mm-hmm. but that's a pretty small sliver in the grand scheme of things. And on Barcelona, because not only is it you and Wit, but also Taylor Nichols, were, were, did you three feel that in those intervening four years that you know everyone's not only everyone that everyone's confidence level had gone up, and also what had a shorthand been developed that you all knew each other on each other's wavelengths? on what needed to be done? Yeah, I mean, Witt and I, and Taylor also, you know, we had become pretty good friends. Taylor and I remain really close friends also. So there was um, a shorthand. But, you know, I found that shorthand with Witt really early on. Um, there was a there was a scene in, in Metropolitan, one of the first scenes we shot, and um, it was a, one of those long of trademark with Dillman uh, dialogue runs that involves, I think, um, detachable collars and <laughs> something like that. And and we were I was sort of close to it, kind of was working, kind of wasn't working. We both knew it was sort of not working. It was about four o'clock in the morning on Park Avenue, and and we came running up and he's like, you know what it is? It's it needs to be exquisite bullshit. And the notion of exquisite bullshit, and I assume you can say that on this radio program, but maybe you can't. You have to beep it. I apologize. No, no, um, it, it, that to me is is a lot of. It, it's not the way Whit writes for everybody, it, but it is it is the way that he would write for me, where my characters would tend to say things that, on the one hand, aren't true, but on the other hand, are absolutely true, 
and and maybe are emotionally true. But on the other hand, they're just completely made up, but they're so damn beautiful that you sort of have to acknowledge their beauty. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was, I mean, that was the beginning of the shorthand, and that's run, you know, that's run throughout all three films, I think. Right. And, and before I get to the last day of the disco, i got to ask about the film you did right after Barcelona, and also you, you developed a, an acting, directing relationship with Noah Baumbach. Yeah. Did his first film, Kicking and Screaming. Right. Which also playing a character, uh, you know, kind of the sardonic uh, yeah. wise guy. And so yeah. what was that like? What was, what, was, what was the decision process on that one? Um, I really wanted to be a part of Kicking and Screaming. I, I really liked the cast. A lot of those people, some of those people were my friends before, you know, the movie started. And and I thought the movie was just incredibly funny. On the page, I thought the movie was mm-hmm. was was very funny. I remember getting to the reading, and there was a scene about there's a scene where I'm out on a date, and she's driving the car, and there's a trying to park, and there's a guy behind us in a truck with a bumper sticker that that says I'd rather be bow hunting, and there was this. <laughs> comic run about bow hunting, and I thought, you know, I really very much want to be part of this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so again, you know, I, yeah, the, the character I play there is um, certainly verbally um, acute and 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 funny. And I think that he's a very different guy than than appears in Wit film sometimes. But he's a bit of a he's a bit of a. Uh... He's a bit of a scoundrel and a jerk. Uh, yeah. As opposed to yeah. in, the, the, in the characters in, in the witch films where he's a little articulate but a little, uh, little maybe a little uh, naive and more so than he thinks. But the character. Yeah, I think that's true. I think that that in wit, I think wit, wit characters tend to be um, much more gentle than they're given credit for. Mm-hmm. And actually, m- much less confident than they seem. Right. And I think actually the opposite is true in Noah's films, at least in with my experience, where they, you know, they are th- those characters are all incredibly confident. I mean, to their own detriment at times. But um, I, mm-hmm. you know, but people will draw similarities, you know, between the two anyway, because that's what people do. Right. And so then finally we get to the last day of the disco, and so. That comes, and if I'm not mistaken, there was actually a real, not only because of the studio pressure, but there actually was a, a time where I think both of y'all said, well, maybe this one will spit it out. Is that true? Oh, yeah. That was absolutely true. I mean, that was like nothing. I mean, we, it wasn't even like, um, you, you know, pretending that we weren't going to do it together, knowing that we were going to do it together. We weren't going to do this. Um, I helped him a little bit when he was in early stages of casting for some of the women. And so I would come in occasionally and, and read with people, but that was it. And we both knew it, it, it served everybody for me not to be in the picture. It, it served wit because he needed, you know, he was dealing with studio pressures, obviously, to get somebody famous and, and you know, studio approved. But also, I think it probably, you know, Witt was thinking I should probably start working with other people anyway. And I was thinking, you know, 
this might be fine to sit this one out because, you know, I, this would just cement the deal of, you know, starting with Metropolitan and, and running all the way through. And, you know, that was a little bittersweet because it was strange to think of what going off making a film without me. Uh, but at the same time, we were all really upfront about it, that, that we were just not going to do this. And then, I, I, and I'm not really sure how it all came to be. I, I, assume, I know that I've heard that, that there were people, you know, other actors involved and that it didn't work out. And I assume that, you know, when when Witt petitioned to get me in it, there was a certain amount of blood on the floor, and, and I'm, I'm certainly appreciative of that. Um, and then the next thing I know, we're doing the film. And it's funny, when, when I talked to Witt, I, I, I made the point of that at the time, you know, studio pressures of getting, getting you know, getting bigger name indie stars or whatnot. And I, I asked him, it must be kind of, amusing and kind of bittersweet that, you know, if he was to do the film today, they would want Chloe Seventy and Kate Beckinsale yeah. in the film. Yeah. That's now, whether they'd want me or not is an open question, but I think uh, I think you're right. I think, and also, you know, if you watch Wit with actresses, Wit has a very good eye with actors. I mean, a lot of those actresses that, that you know, Mira and, and Barcelona, like they... They all go off to, to, to pretty good stuff. And did you notice on on Last Day of the Disco? I mean, you you've been in his three films, and so what what did what was the what could you tell the evolution of his uh, directing from Metropolitan to Last Day of the Disco? Had had he changed his technique or style, or, or was it just a matter? No, of... No, I don't think he ever really changed his style. I think. But I do think that with Disco, the budget was was much, much larger, so there were many, many more people around. I mean, there were just a lot more people on set. Mm-hmm. And we were dealing with a huge set piece with that Disco anyway. So I think the only difference is, you know, Wit, Wit is really good about um, being able to sort of tune out all the distractions that, that are around on a set. And I think on, on Disco, he really had to work hard to tune them out because there were a ton of people. Right. Um, and I would say that would be the only difference. Um, and was it uh, contractually obligated that you were not going to dance in the film? Um, it was not contractually <laughs> obligated in as much as it just wasn't going to happen. I, you know, he he got me to dance in one movie by kind of faking me out and and saying we were going to cut in Barcelona, we were going to cut before and. He didn't, and I was like, okay, that's it. We're done now. Now we're not. Now I'm not even gonna even, you know, try to give you a quick cut point of so that I can, you know, go down the dance floor and you'll cut the floor. Like I'm not even going near it. So this is just the assumption. I will not be dancing. I think the only people who dance in that movie are um, Kate and Chloe dance. Oh, I get I get uh, uh, Matt dances. I guess. Matt and well, even Robert on Leonard gets a little. Uh, oh, does he? Yeah. Robert John Leonard called me. Um, um, what did he say? Uh, oh, see, now I can't remember what it was. It was a funny line. It'll come to me. Well, um, I'm, I'm curious. Were you when you did that film? Because this was uh, you, you. You were pretty young during this disco era. So, were you aware of this 
of the disco of the disco stuff, or did you learn more about disco from doing that film than maybe you had awareness beforehand? Um, there was one. I think probably in like 74, 75, 75, 76 maybe, Mm -hmm. there was one disco in Denver that my, it it was a steakhouse during the day and then at night it turned into a disco and it was called something like the Ground Round or like (laughs) Hot Tenderloin or something like that, something that somehow worked both for a steakhouse and for a disco and I remember going, like sneaking in and getting into it when I was way, way, way too young. So I, and that was basically my only experience. I mean, when I was in high school, we would come into New York City sometimes. I went to high school in Vermont, and we would come down to the city. And so clubs like, you know, the Tunnel or like Tunnel and Limelight, and I don't think 54 was around. They existed, and mm-hmm. and I would go to those occasionally. Um, but I was really of the school that disco sucked. So that was, you know, I was I was firmly rooted in that. Mm-hmm. And well, to start wrapping this up, when you when you see these three films, you know together this this unofficial, as, as some critics like to call it, you know, Witch Stillman's unofficial Wasp trilogy of early '80s. Uh, right. What What do you think when you when you look at those films and, and your participation in them? Uh, well, I you know my participation, I I don't um I don't really think about very much in a way, but. What I do, I I think the films are pretty. I think the films are really interesting because they're they strike me as films about or stories about um, groups and how how groups of of people, you know, how how everybody clings to each other for support and and surviving and and finding mates and all of that and and how society is 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 pulling these groups apart mm-hmm. that's certainly true of metropolitan I, I think it's kind of true of barcelona and it's clearly true i think of disco right. that you know you could argue it's about the death of disco but it really isn't i mean in terms of the movie it's really about the loss of this group of mm-hmm. friends and 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 how every you know all of his movies seem to end um, with individuals, mm-hmm. you know, wandering away. And Disco, it's, it's me and Kate, or Kate and I, kind of going off. But it's, you know, it's that last scene around the unemployment office and everybody just sort of scatters. Mm-hmm. And that's similar with, with Metropolitan also. I think that, you know, I, I think that, that that kind of sadness is is really an underpinning of his films. Right. Well, I, I got to ask one, one quick question because every one of the, the films that you, you've done with Stillman, you, you always get a, a monologue more or less that becomes kind of a, a, yeah. the one that you become famous for, whether it's the, uh, the Rick Von Sonnigan monologue of Metropolitan and, and kind of right. the, the duet on Lady and the Tramp and Disco. But I got to ask you about my favorite monologue from Barcelona. And that's on the graduate. Um, I loved that thing. I thought that was, uh, I mean, I thought who but would Stillman would tell the graduates from the point of view of the jilted groom at the altar. Like, it, no one, uh, you know, no one has ever really thought about it. 
kind of like the makeout king of, in his right. fraternity at Berkeley. Uh, you know, I I really I agree with you. I think it's incredibly funny. I think there's a bunch of those that are really funny. I think the the run on Graduate is funny. I think the text subtext thing is very funny. Um, you know, I'm I'm very happy to get a, a good, healthy two-page um, monologue. I am most unhappy and at my worst when I have, you know, one line, uh, you know, in a scene because the pressure is just too much and I screw it up all the time. Uh, well, before I let you go, uh, I'll just ask, what are you uh, working on? What are you working on next? Um, I, I'm directing a film this spring that I wrote. Oh, great. Um, so, yeah, it should, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's Jesse Eisenberg and Colin Hanks and Felicity Jones, who's a, a oh, British wow. actor. Well, Jesse Eisenberg and is, Jesse Eisenberg's amazing. Um, I thought, he I, is, he, he's it, an incredible actor. Adventureland. Really Adventureland is my favorite film of the year so far. Oh, really? Yeah, Adventureland is wonderful. Mattola, Greg Matola, I think, did a great. I I agree with you. I think it's a it's a really beautiful film. I think it's it's just coming out on video right now. Yeah, next week, and it's is spectacular. It? I've seen it um, a few times. It's amazing. Yeah, he's he's you know he's amazing. Uh, and are you doing any more um, uh, spots on episodic television? Anything coming? You know, up? I because I've sort of been buried in in some kind of pre-production on this thing, I have not done any. I haven't acted in a little while, actually. Mm -hmm. um, I, and, uh, I certainly hope to, again. Right. And I'll get that lastly. Uh, you, you know, we, we keep hearing rumblings, uh, and, and Witt talked about this, about, you know, he's got several things that, you know, are in, you know, planning phases. And I'm just curious, are you, have, you know, you said like on Disco that you helped out, you did table reads and so forth. Have you, have you been in contact with Wit and do you, have you read any of the stuff that he's working on? You know, I haven't, but I, I think that that's, um, I, I'm, it could be that I'm not right for any of them. <laughs> so he's just trying to spare me bad feelings. Right. Um, but, you know, I, I, I've only heard sort of titles or uh, sort of notions of films that, that he's up to, but I don't know a lot about any of them. Hmm. Um, but, you well, know, look, I, I, hope he, I hope he gets one going. Yeah, me too. Uh, yeah. Well, Mr. Agaman, I want to thank you for taking the time out for talking, talking to me. Uh, I'm, I'm very appreciative that you're a fan of the show. I, I do appreciate it, and I'm a oh, fan of your work. Uh, thank you. Uh, we have a special guest uh, joining us. Uh, as you may have heard earlier in the Witt Stillman portion of the interview of the show, uh, Stillman talked about the critical responses that his films have received and said he's been mostly uh, lucky with all the good notices, but said uh, one review that, has, uh, that he was never really able to get over, which was that of David Edelstein, of, uh, formerly of Slate, who uh, Stillman says... Uh, walked out after 10 minutes. Well, that is actually inaccurate. Uh, Mr. Edelstein did not walk out after 10 minutes, uh, but uh, Stillman remembers it that way. Well, Edelstein has, uh, is on the line and has joined us to set the record straight. He has been a film critic for going on 25 years, beginning with the Boston Phoenix and moving on 
the Village Voice and the New York Post. He was at Slate.com for almost a decade, and now he is at the uh, he is the lead critic at New York Magazine. You can also hear his reviews weekly on Fresh Air with Terry Gross on NPR, and also see him on uh, this uh, this CBS Sunday this morning. He's a good friend of mine. I'm honored to welcome David Edelstein. Hi, Aaron. Aaron, how are you? How are you doing, sir? Thanks for inviting me on under these grim circumstances. Yes. Um, uh, well, uh, I, wait, wait. Let me just say first, I, I didn't even know if it was a good idea to come on as I as I wrote you. Um, back in '98, I wrote what I wrote, and I'm not going to uh, wuss out. I stand by the review, but 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 it's a review that's bothered me for all these what 11 years. So right. maybe it's good to unburden myself. Uh, Thank you for saying that I did not stay for 10 minutes. I stayed for 90 minutes. And I didn't walk out of a critic screening. I don't do that. I saw it uh, in a largely empty theater on the Upper East Side after it had already opened in New York. And it, and it got good reviews from the major New York papers, by the way. So I didn't kill it commercially. And here's the thing. I just want to make it clear. I had no intention of writing about it. Um, but later that week, I got a call from my editor saying, are you reviewing the Whit Stillman movie? And I said, no, I walked out. And she said, oh, because we, they, want you to write something about him in your column. And I said, I walked. And she says, well, write that. That would be interesting. Now, uh, I should say, I raved Metropolitan and the New York Post. And I liked Barcelona, though I wasn't reviewing movies when it opened. I, I didn't want to bash Whit Stillman especially. Uh, you you should remember Slate wasn't even two years old. It was not, at the time, a well-read publication. And I didn't think there was even the remotest chance Whit Stillman would read what I wrote or particularly give a damn, given his movie was opening wide across the country that week. So, 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 so. I wrote the review, just a paragraph or two, I can't remember, as part of a larger column, and it went up. And then there was that holy shit moment. Slate at the time had a feature called the Slate Diary. Some accomplished person would write a daily diary entry. This was pre-blogs. And the diarist that week was, you ready? Yeah. Whit Stillman. <laughs> and when I saw that, I freaked out. I wrote to Mike Kinsley, the founding editor of Slate, and I said, why the hell did you want me to write about this movie? Why didn't you tell me Stillman was doing the diary? Because he's like he's like a guest in our house, and you don't shit on a guest in your house. He's in Slate, writing about the anxiety surrounding the opening of his movie, and next to him is this review. And I might be an asshole, but I'm not, you know, a sadist. And Mike wrote back. He said, you're right, you're absolutely right, I'm really sorry, it was a huge oversight, you should have been told, blah, blah, blah. So I said, okay, fine, let's take the review off the site, and I think I should write to Stillman and tell him I had no idea he was doing the diary. And Mike said, well, it's up, we can't take it back. My advice, drop the whole thing. He said, I've known Wit for many years. It turns out he and Kinsley were, were at Harvard together or somewhere, I, I think it was Harvard, and he'll get over it. He's a pretty tough guy, don't worry about it. So that was that. But then over the years, I heard from people he hated my guts. And you know what? Given the circumstances, I don't blame him at all. Mm -hmm. 
Well, and um, and I and like I said, it wasn't until after I had done the interview and uh, recorded the interview with with Stillman, and I had a then I uh, I think I'd emailed you and said, hey, or I left a phone message, and then you emailed and gave me this backstory that I went on and I went looking for the review. It's actually a little hard to find, but it is <laughs> still Good. online. Good, I'm glad. And, <laughs> and um, it is, uh, and it, and uh, and you're right. It is. It's the last portion of a uh, of a long a, column. Yeah, a long column. I think the key, the big film you reviewed was uh, actually the Truman Show. Right. Was I think I was mixed on mixed favorable. I think it was mixed. Mixed favorable. Yeah. I am. Uh, I am mixed on. So I hope and so, I was. And it was there, and then it said uh, uh, ninety minutes, and so. Nine, so we. Wait. Let me let me just say. Wait. A I don't hate Whit Stillman's work at all. You know, I said I raved Metropolitan. I think he's in a tradition of of American writers, sat, well, not exactly satirists, people like Henry James and Edith Wharton who have a satiric perspective, but also a lot of empathy. You know, they show the way people's ideas, their ways of seeing the world are always tripping over their emotions, and their emotions are always tripping over their ideas. Now, I didn't like The Last Days of Disco because I thought he got the energy of the era all wrong. And the energy, the sexuality, the rush, the the stroboscopic rush, you know, was central to the ways in which I saw people in that era communicating. But, I, I, you know, I'm not going to re-review the movie. Only say that I deeply, deeply regret the context in which that review was published and I bet you anything, I've given it more thought over the years than even Whit Stillman. Right. Well, and, and, and just so we can end on kind of a more positive note, in that go, going back to where this all started, Metropolitan, I, I said at the opening of, of the show when I was introducing the, the, the theme of the show, of the film to Whit Stillman, and that, you know, he critics glibly labeled him kind of the wasp Woody Allen which uh, he's not, and I I said uh, my the way I look at Witch Stillman, he kind of does for Wasp what in the early years Spike Lee did for the African American middle class, which is to kind of acknowledge the the existence of it of a Wasp, and to locate the the humanity that yeah. kind of uh, you know that I think even liberal critics kind of uh, just kind of scoff at. Uh, I mean, I think I think there are similarities among all these people, but I I think I think Stillman's um, influences go go even further back. Like I said, I think there's a great tradition of very verbal, very uh, intellectual characters or 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 characters who who attempt to articulate their feelings and who have very strong views of the world and how their feelings and their ideas are always sort of stumbling all over each other. It's, it's it's almost a kind of intellectual slapstick, but it's played very deadpan. And, you know, certainly in Barcelona, his Americans Abroad movie, and Metropolitan, his sort of, uh, you know, Upper, upper East Side... Uh, Christmas uh, rich Tale. Kids. Yeah, uh, Christmas Tale. Um, you know, I think he, I think he really nailed that. Uh, I should see Last Days of Disco again, because I... I, as you know, I I trust your taste. I respect it, and even when we disagree, and um, and it might be worth another look. Although to to be honest, it's very hard to take a look at something that you've written something vicious about again and not be thinking the whole time, oh God, I you know, 
I, it's, it's, hard, it's hard to look at it neutrally. I'd rather go on and see the next Whit Stillman movie, which I honestly, no matter what the hell he says about me, I'm so looking forward to because I really do respect him. That, that review of Last Days of Disco is notwithstanding. Look, if you're a critic wherever, the Times, your own blog, you're, you're going to be adversarial. You're going to hurt people. Um, I've, I've accepted that. I've, I've lost some friends. But in, in that particular case... It was a it was a bad thing all around. Ultimately, it was my responsibility, but I'm going to continue to blame the hell out of my editors all the same. <laughs>